0: Good morning, everyone. morning to those of you joining us uh, via the online live stream as well. Now, if you're here for the first time joining us, you'd like to know that we are basically going through the book of Genesis. And today we come to the familiar passage of Jacob wrestling with God. Jacob wrestling with God. Last week, our local preacher, Calvin, he preached on how Jacob cheated his brother Esau. If you missed that sermon, you can always catch it online. So basically, Jacob uh, uh, cheated his brother Esau of his birthright over a bow of. Ang tao yeah you'll be listening okay red bean soup that's what in the chinese translation the english is red lentils so today we fast forward many years later to the other end of the account to the point where jacob is about to return to face his brother esau so uh, jacob ran away because he cheated his brother and now we come to the end of the story where jacob returns to face his brother esau in genesis chapter 32 i will just be reading a portion of it do follow along in your own bibles whether it's online or hard copy so let's join the account here at verse 22 the night before jacob meets his brother esau so that night jacob got up he took his two wives his two female servants his eleven sons and crossed the ford of jabuk or jabuk after that he had sent them after he had sent them across the stream he sent over all his possessions and so jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak when the man saw that he could not overpower him He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked his name, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. And so Jacob caught that place, Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I didn't read this earlier but in Genesis chapter 32 you can read it for yourself the passage actually begins with Jacob seeing angels do you recall the last time Jacob saw angels it was when he was running away from Jake, uh, his brother Esau right and he fell asleep It was nightfall he fell asleep he had a dream he saw angels ascending and descending so that was the last time he saw angels he was running away and now that he's returning he sees angels again angels again so you see there's a parallel here and so, uh, this time, he uh, came back and saw angels. Let's look back at let's, uh, Genesis chapter 28 again. At the time when he was running away, Jacob made a vow. He said to God, If God will be with me, watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give you a tent. So this was Jacob's vow towards God when he left. So now when he returns, guess what? Actually, God has fulfilled his promises because he has returned safely. His prayer to God at the time was, God, if I return safely, I will worship you. And sure enough, Jacob has returned safely. So again, the whole thread through the book of Genesis is very simple. is this, our God is a faithful, covenantal God. He's a faithful, covenantal God. He always keeps his promises because it is in his nature. It is who he is it's his nature to be faithful and loyal to be a promise keeper so no matter how we behave God will never change his character because that is who he is here's the thing we need to know about God's character as well his nature that he is a good father and a good father will never leave his children to their own sinful devices he can't which of us as loving parents would do that to see your children in sin and don't feel anything for them they don't wish to correct them and so our father in heaven will never leave us to our own sinful human devices he will surely intervene for our sake and for the sake of his glory of his name he will surely intervene and so he does that as well in jacob's case now the heavenly father will step in to intervene in jacob's life all this while jacob has been a scheming man he has taken matters into his own hands all this while from the time he cheated his brother esau of his birthright. Right, to the time that he cheated his uncle Laban and of course he was also cheated by him vice versa all this while Jacob has been a scheming man he uses his, his worldly wisdom, human wisdom and logic to get his ways and by his own scheming methods, so far he has been very successful but from God's point of view, this is not the way to live you cannot always live by a way of scheming, cheating, deceiving it is simply not the right way to live and so the heavenly father knows I need to intervene in Jacob's life for his own good. And so, but before we go to that part where Jacob, you know, uh, he wrestles with God, you can see again for yourself in Genesis chapter 32 how Jacob uses his old same tactics, the same old tactics that he had but when he left. When he cheated his brother Esau, he gave him a bowl of ang red lentils, red bean soup, right? Because he knew that Esau was a materialistic person. And so, when he came back, he thought Israel was uh, Esau was still the same materialistic person. And so if you read the account, he will basically send people and possessions ahead of him. Go and pacify my brother Esau, so that when he comes, or when I come and see him, he will not be so angry. Very human way of thinking, very human way of acting. Wow, right? This guy is like that. I better act in this way, pacify him. And so Jacob's men, they do as they were instructed. They find Esau, and they present the gifts, so and so forth. But then the scripture tells us, They return with horrifying news. Esau is now coming towards Jacob with 400 men. (laughs) Taking revenge time, right? Oh, oh no. So he panics. And indeed, verse 7, the scripture tells us, in great fear and distress, Jacob uses his human logic again and splits his camp into two groups. Why? If one group is attacked, they are are (laughs) killed, (laughs) at least still got another group. Very human way of thinking. So we, up to this point, we see this same very human, very selfish Jacob at work, even willing to sacrifice his men and his sheep, sending him ahead, let them be dead, dead first, killed first. If anything happens, at least I can survive and run away. Very human way of doing. And so we ask ourselves, is there any hope for this recalcitrant, unrepentant schemer? Now, before we are too judgmental towards Jacob, let's also examine our own hearts, our own lives. Have we also been unrepentant, recalcitrant, scheming in many ways? How often have we fallen back to our old human ways of sin, or sinful behaviour, relying on human logic, our human you know, self-reliance, self-sufficiency? If you are honest with ourselves, we can attend church week after week and have no real change in our lives. No real change, no power for change in our lives. We can attend church on Sunday morning and easily visit the casino on Sunday night. You all laugh, huh? That makes me worried, you know. Whether you are, it's a real story, right? You can easily attend church on Sunday and Monday when you get back to office, you start berating people, scolding people as if they are less than human with the words that you use. You don't treat them as humans. You can attend church on sunday morning and in the very next hour when you reach home you start scolding putting down your own family members over and over again actually we struggle we all struggle with this we always go back we seem to always go back to our old sinful ways of living as if there is no breakthrough so what is the answer what is the solution can there really be no solution to this human dilemma this human problem why is there no change in our lives The answer is there's always change possible there's always hope possible except many times the solution doesn't come in the way that we expect and in jacob's case it came in the form of god wrestling with him almost every bible translation if you just do a simple search online they will find that you'll find that in verse 25 like the NIV does it will translate as this when the man saw that he could not overcome him In other words, when the man saw that he could not overcome Jacob, right there, he will break Jacob's heap. And the reason most of them do so is because the narrative, we we see that Jacob was clinging on to the man, right? And he refuses to let him go until he is blessed. So that's why most of the translations see that it is the man who could not overcome Jacob. Now, if you take this line of interpretation, which most people have done, the lesson is pretty straightforward. If you are wrestling right with God, don't give up. Persevere. Hang on. Persevere. Be tenacious. And surely, whatever challenges you're facing, trust in God and press on and eventually you will be blessed. Now that is a very straightforward way of interpreting this Bible passage. But today I want to challenge this status quo, this typical interpretation. I want to give us so called the minority report, a slightly different way of seeing things. There are three clues why I think this is possible. First of all, <clears throat> is the meaning of the word jabok, the river. It means emptying, to be emptied. And the book picture really is that of a mark, right? Being emptied. You can hear the sound in your mind, right? That is more like the Hebrew sound, right? So that's the idea. And so it gives us already a clue. God has a plan. As a father, he cannot leave his children to their own sinful devices, and he has a plan to empty Jacob of himself. So that's clue number one. Second, from a, from a textual angle, the Hebrew text is actually pretty ambiguous. Like I said, most translations were put when the man saw that he could not overcome Jacob. But actually, in the Hebrew text, there is no specification of the man, instead, there is only one general pronoun which is when he saw that he could not overcome him who is the he let's do simple comprehension who is the he who saw who cannot overcome who (laughs) it's actually very ambiguous i think that is the brilliant part of this text so while it is possible that jacob was the one who saw that he could not overcome uh, the man right or the man could not overcome him it's very unlikely to start with jacob because the, the next part of the, the sentence is that the man is the one who broke Jacob's hip so we rule that permutation out it is not Jacob who saw they cannot overcome right or the man could not overcome him rather definitely it is the man who saw but what did the man see did the man see that he cannot overcome Jacob or did he see that Jacob could not overcome him which is it so most translations like I said they take this first approach when he saw When the man saw that he cannot overcome Jacob then he broke the hip but I suggest maybe there's another way to look at it maybe he saw that Jacob could not overcome him when he realized that maybe finally Jacob is emptied this is the point that I will act you see if the man could easily break Jacob's hip in one stroke surely he could have done it earlier right he could have done it much earlier so why didn't he I believe the simple reason is this he was waiting for Jacob to come to his own realization that he cannot do it like I said in the past Jacob has succeeded in his own human flesh human effort all this while but now God wants Jacob to see for himself that he can no longer prevail against God on his own human terms and effort he has to see that he needs to be defeated, as it were, to be emptied before he can be victorious. And really, this is a very important principle for us, biblical principle for all of us as Christians as well. The power for change comes only when we learn to empty ourselves of ourselves. Human effort, that's when we can begin to see God's power at work in our lives. Very simple analogy. If our feasts are always clenched, can we receive anything? No, because we are not ready to receive. It is only when we dare to open up ourselves can there be new power to flow into our lives. There are other pes- uh, clues in this passage that support this other interpretation. It is not the inability of the man to overcome Jacob. First of all, Jacob tried to ask for the man's name, but he received no reply. So obviously, the superior person will not reveal his name. Right? Second, Jacob had his name changed. And only someone of a superior status can change your name you can't get someone of a lower status to change your name and finally as jacob himself confesses he met with god in the hebrew "peniel" means face of god that's why he says i met god face to face and i survived although there are some scholars who suggest this man so-called is from a demonic source actually it contradicts the text because jacob confesses it is god and we all know right it is god who wrestled with jacob so all this goes to show that it cannot be god didn't have the ability to overcome jacob right that would be so weird if god didn't have the ability to overcome jacob in the first place and so really it is because jacob must be brought to the end of his rope god was waiting not because god was unable but god was waiting for jacob to see that he is unable and then god can intervene and change this man's life so all this while he has been a deceiver he has granted him success But now Jacob has to learn defeat at the hands of God so that he can learn victory through defeat. He can only be victorious if he has learned to walk in the ways of brokenness and defeat. But take note, this defeat at the hands of God is a good thing. Sinners in the hands of an angry God it seems like a famous, it's a famous sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, you know, for the revival in the Great Awakening. It's, the title sounds scary, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But if you reflect upon it, what did David pray when he sinned? And they were given? he was given certain options, you know, to choose what would happen to his uh, family and so on and so forth. And his answer is brilliant. And he tells us really he knows the heart of God. He says, Whatever happens, just let me be in the hands of God. Don't let my enemies kill me. If you put me in the hands of my enemies, I will surely die. But put me in the hands of God. And God will show mercy one day. So David knows the heart of God. And so it is with Jacob as well. It may seem like God is harsh to Jacob, to break him. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. But there is no better place to be, I'm telling you. You, Would you rather be in the hands of an angry God or the hands of an angry human? Which one will you choose? I will definitely choose the hands of an angry God because God is merciful and His anger is for disciplining for our own good. Whereas humans, they take revenge and to no end, right? I hope you'll make the right choice as well. And so if we want change on our lives, we must really be willing to be emptied of ourselves and allow God to break us. Allow God to break us and to change us. So God is not a sadistic God. He does not inflict pain for His own sake. He will never do that. But whatever he does, it is out of love. His discipline is for our own good. We must be willing to empty ourselves before the Lord. The effect of breaking Jacob's head meant that Jacob had to walk with a limb for the rest of his life. His life started with limb, L-I-M-B, limb, right? He was grabbing his brother's heel. And now the turnaround, the point of his turnaround in his story is also with a limb, but this time around with his own leg. He was born grabbing the heel of his brother, but now he has to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And this tells us also, as a side note, it's not how we start, but how we allow God to enter into our lives that really can make a difference. Very few of us have a wonderful start in life. Very few. Many of us, in fact all of us, I would say, come from broken families. So none of us have a great start in life. Jacob didn't have a good start in his life. But we all can have a major turnaround if we allow God to break us. As we submit ourselves, put ourselves into his hands. And so when Jacob does this, with this broken limb, he also has a new name. God gives to Jacob a new name. And the new name symbolizes, really, his time of resting is over. The time of emptying, Jabok, that river, gone, it's settled. I'm going to give you your new name, and it's Israel. Israel. A new name signifies a new identity. A new identity. What does the name Israel mean? In Hebrew, L means God, right? Emmanuel, L. Pastor Emmanuel not here now. He's probably at the upstairs. Uh, he went to Amokio for a while to pray for the opening of the service in time to come. So L means God. The letters, the consonantal letters S R H, uh, which in Hebrew uh, the letter H will drop off in the verb form. But I don't want to go into the technical points. But basically, it means something like persevere, content, prevail, struggle these are the shades of meaning it is basically a word that requires effort no matter how you translate it, it is something that you need to put in effort right, so these are the shades of meaning for the word, the verb there and so, uh, I'm going to go into the technical details there are three basic ways we can translate Israel first of all, it's like a request let God be the one to put in the effort to contend to persevere to prevail let god be the one to do it second way we can translate it is that one person who wrestles with god right because in the hebrew uh, the syntax is this the verb comes first before the noun so uh, if you give give example in english we say the noun first all right he comes to me for example he comes to me but in hebrew you must think like yoda or star wars come he to me Ah, so that is the Hebrew syntax, okay? So in this Israel, the, the one is, a, is there in the clause. So it can be he who perseveres with God or he who contends with God. Because they, now God can represent both. Either God is the one wrestling or someone who wrestles with God. So that is the second way we can interpret this. And third is, as, as it is, a verb. God is the one who perseveres, who contends, who prevails. Now all three shades of meaning, I believe, are relevant. In today's passage however you translate it there is a lesson from each of these names first of all if you take the first interpretation let God be the one who contends then the lesson is this we must learn to let go and let God God you take over let go and let God if it's the second approach which is generally uh, the most translations because they translate the man right was not able to overcome uh, God I overcome Jacob, so it's this second meaning. Don't be afraid of wrestling and struggling with God. Don't be afraid of that, because it is in this wrestling with God that we actually gain strength. We gain tenacity, we gain resilience, and victory comes through defeat. And if we take the third meaning, it reminds us of a God who perseveres. That God will never give up on us. He will always put in the effort to redeem, to rescue us. And so whichever way you see it, these, for me, are all good news. That God is the one in charge of our lives. So, practically, two quick lessons. Number one, learning to let go and to let God. To let go and let God. Easier said than done, definitely easier said than done. But still, as a preacher, I need to bring you God's Word. Last week, we tracked pastors, we went for our annual pastors' retreat, and throughout the retreat, we read this book by Francois Fernand, a French mystic, entitled Let God. So he worked uh, in various uh, vocations, right? But one of his roles was a spiritual director. And he wrote many letters. This was back in the 17th century or 16th century. So he wrote many letters uh, to various individuals. And the overarching theme of this book is very simple. We all must learn to let go of our own selfish ways. Our own ways of self-sufficiency, self-dependency, doing everything in our own human effort. Learn to let go and trust God even trusting God to fix the people and the world around us now that's the difficult part letting go of oneself why well, very difficult already but maybe you know you can still try but learning to let go to let God trust, uh, trust God to take care of things around us that's another higher level right and so lon writes learn to let your neurotic fixations go learn to let humans be just that human since we are human, that means we are broken, selfish, fickle unjust, untruthful, and arrogant. Learn to let the world be what it is, fallen. The world isn't as it was intended to be, accept that. Otherwise, you are really going to wear yourself out. Learn to give people space, give them the room to be who they are, having their own bents and struggles and ways of living. Make peace with this. You can't change people. Let them be and live with them exactly where they are. When you read the passage like this i don't know what goes through in your mind but i think of marital counseling i always tell the couples you can never change your spouse Accept that if you don't accept this reality you are going to tire yourself out trying to change your spouse and it's impossible because it is not your job it's always god's job i know humanly we always try to fix people try to fix things that's what we want to do and so he's trying to encourage all of us Let's see things differently. Let's learn to let go and let God. In fact, he says, don't be surprised when you see people acting in ways that make no sense or when you see people perpetrating injustice even. Wow! (laughs) Rest, give way to peace, trust in God. It is His will and He sees all that is happening far more clearly than you do. And note this, apparently God doesn't see the need to rush in right now and change everything. Wow! (laughs) If God doesn't rush in to change everything, why should we when we accept this we have the peace of God so be okay with the simpler way again of course I need to qualify he's a mistake Phelanon is a mistake uh, we need to read him from the anger we can of course accuse him of being indifferent you know being a passive and so and so forth but it's really not fair because he lived in a different time and context and he wrote to specific individuals so mystics as we know they like to surrender all things to God lah, huh? so still there is certain wisdom that we can glean from this way of approaching life in jacob's case he had to learn to let go of his old ways of scheming resorting to his own human efforts to learn to trust god what about us what is god asking us to empty of ourselves what is our jabok river that god is trying to empty of us from us initially we will always find letting go and letting god being very difficult It's always difficult initially, but as we learn to walk in this way, then we will discover how liberating it is. That's why Jesus can say, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For those of us who don't know God well, we hear that verse, we think, wow, Jesus asked me to put his own yoke, die already, that's the end of my life. But when we recognize who Jesus is, he's our loving shepherd. When we take that yoke upon us, then we realise, eh, all this while I've been carrying my own yoke and that is the one that is heavy. And I release my yoke to him and I take on his yoke. That's when I find true freedom. So let, learn to let go and let God because God is far more able to take care of all our problems. Second lesson is this. Let's learn to embrace the way of brokenness. Not just to let go, but to embrace the way of brokenness and see that there are actually many wonderful lessons, rich lessons we can learn from defeats. I see children in our midst and it's wonderful to have children worshipping with us. We all know this, you know when toys are broken, our typical instinct is to throw it away, <laughs> right? But actually, in God's economy, God loves broken things. I have one chapel message I'd like to share with you know, the primary school students. I always ta- ask them this question. What do you think God Jesus will work as if he came into Singapore today? What do you think will be his vocation? What will he work as? Yeah, inevitably, some people will say, you know, he's a doctor because he heals people. Wow, very good. Some people will say he's a teacher because he teaches people. Yeah, of course, all this. But I always challenge it and I tell them, tell them, I believe Jesus will work as a garanguni. Really. Because he came as a lowly carpenter or even construction worker, foreign worker as it were, to fix things. He's in the business of fixing broken things. And I love that, isn't it? if god came and looked only for perfect people none of us will be here but he came as a, if you come in singapore today you probably come as a garangoni. nobody will even look at him we would despise him but yet god uses the broken uses the foolish to shame the wise that's always god's method broken but blessed broken but blessed that's god's way of operating So many scripture passages, Psalm fifty-one verse seventeen, for example, "My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit; a broken, contrite heart, God, you will not despise." And then in many places, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God loves to work with broken things. It is through Jacob's brokenness, his defeat, that he finally gains victory, that he finally becomes an overcomer. It is through defeat, and the best example of this is the cross the cross is so called defeat of God but it is in this brokenness, his body was broken, we are going to celebrate communion we say this all the time, it is through the broken body of Christ that we receive blessings, new life it is through defeat that we get ultimate victory there are so many wonderful lessons we can learn from being defeated as well for example, failing is better than not trying Right. so it teaches us resilience, don't give up try and try again that winning is not everything for example right we can also learn that lesson so that we don't become so competitive that we destroy relationships just in order to win so there are many things we can learn from being broken and defeated so learn to embrace this new way of life as well there are such key conditions this humility this brokenness are key conditions to be used mightily by god even john wesley we typically remember him as the great evangelist who launched the methodist movement but God had to use a season in his life to break him before he was used by God. In his own testimony, this is what he writes, uh, sorry, this is what Wood writes in this book that uh, in, uh, the track pastors are also studying. He writes, Wesley was a man at the end of his spiritual tether. Georgia was his last resort. If he failed, he had no alternative. The house of his self-made righteousness would collapse. So let me give you the brief context here. So Wesley, as you know, he was a very disciplined man. He started the Holy Club. He always wanted to have this assurance of salvation, to know that God has indeed saved him. And so he put in all these rules, you know, every day wake up at a certain time, do certain things, all these spiritual disciplines, in order to feel that he has this salvation. And so by the, uh, by the time he went to Georgia as a missionary, he still didn't have the peace of God. But he wanted to go, to prove himself. Okay, I'm going to go there and convert people. You know, then I will know I will be saved. But at the end, it turns out, he had a horrible time in Georgia. He had very few converts, and then his love relationship failed. He returned to America a totally defeated, dejected man. But writes, right, that this is the end that he feared, but actually it turned out to be better. When every trace of reliance on anything but the sheer unmerited grace of God had been removed, Wesley was ready to trust in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation. When Wesley was stripped of his own self-righteousness, I have been praying, I have been preaching, I have been visiting the sick. When he was stripped of all this, then he realised, surely it is only by the grace of God that I am safe. It is in his brokenness that God met him and changed him and became, that eventually he became the evangelist that we all know of. So brokenness is such an important condition for us to be used mightily by God. In God's economy, the way up is always down. Victory comes through defeat. Victory comes through defeat. Let us learn the ways of letting go, letting God, and learning to embrace brokenness in our lives. I close with this story. There was once a dark, evil swordsman. He mastered a certain technique. And so he was conquering the pugilistic world, defeating everybody at will. Finally, he came to the last, great, outstanding school. And this master of the school fought with him three days, three nights, and eventually defeated this evil swordsman. And so, as the master held his sword at the evil swordsman's throat, he decided to show compassion, as a great master would, right? I shall not kill you, I will let you live. And so he turned his back, wanting to give him a chance. But this evil man seized the opportunity and stabbed him in the back. the Grandmaster uh, uh, was dying and then he ran away this he he fled for his life as the Grandmaster was lying there dying he said to his chief disciple go up to the mountain and find your Grand-Uncle he's the only one who can defeat him And so the chief disciple went on this long search finally found this Grand-Uncle who had entered into reclusion at first he tried to persuade his grand uncle to go and you know go back, enter into the pugilistic world and try to attack and kill this evil swordsman. But he refused. And so he offered himself to be trained. But again the grand uncle refused. And so, like all good Kung Fu movies, this man knelt in the rain. Three days, three nights. <laughs> if you don't accept me, I will never leave. And so the grandmaster, after three days, relented and said, okay i will train you but on one condition and the disciple asked what is it he says i will not tell you first do you trust me he said yes i trust you of course he will trust you right in his mind thinking i must take revenge of course i will trust you then the grand uncle said recuperate first we will train when you are well A few days went by, He's enough, well enough for training session and so the the grand uncle decided to assess this disciple's ability, you know, cross swords with him. And midway through the sparring session, the grand uncle sliced off his right arm, (laughs) right And so the disciple was in great agony, he thought to himself, surely my grand uncle doesn't want me to take revenge. How can I take revenge when I lose my right arm, my most important arm? But then the Kung Fu master again asked the disciple, do you trust me? He said, yes, painfully. He said, yes, I still trust you. And so he says again, recuperate first, we will train when you are well. When the disciple finally recovered from this fatal wound, the master threw him a manual entitled the left-handed swordsman. <laughs> do you trust me? <laughs> yes. And so the disciple started from scratch and trained just with his left arm. After three long years, the disciples were well-trained. To cut the long story short, he went to confront the evil swordsman and defeated him easily. And the secret was this. Because the invisibility of the evil swordsman laid in his ability to grab the opponent's right hand and deal the fatal blow, this guy was able to defeat him because he had no right hand. The evil swordsman could not take advantage of that person's right hand because he had no right hand. And so the left-handed swordsman won the battle. Precisely because he was left-handed, precisely because he was defeated, so-called at the hands of his own grand-uncle, he had to start from a position of weakness and brokenness. Was he able to defeat the evil man? In the same way, our prayer, all of us as Christians, we must pray this. We must begin from a point of weakness and we cry out to God, God, take my right arm. Take my strength teach me to depend afresh on you let me be broken let me be empty and that's when God's power will come into our lives the more we try in our own human effort to change the more difficult it is the more we learn to let go to trust God in our brokenness even through our defeats then we will see the power of God at work in our lives remember the resurrection is great but first it has to be the cross It is the same with us all. Come, let us pray. God is like that grand uncle in this story. And he asks us the same question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Lord, you know it is not easy when there is pain in our lives, when there is brokenness. It is very hard for us to see through the fog and to see you in your hand. But we pray, Holy Spirit, you will strengthen our spirits this day. To trust in you, especially through the pain. We pray, O Lord, you help us to see there is beauty in the pain, there is blessing in the rain, that strength comes from wrestling, and ultimately victory comes from defeat. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.